Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. And you can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can always use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'll be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you get those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And as always, if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, so that is always appreciated, and I do enjoy seeing that show up on social media. In this week's show, we're going to start out in the first segment talking about another bad phone call, another bad phone call that Donald Trump made this past week regarding the election. And much like the phone call where Trump was impeached over, this one involves him leaning on another person trying to get special favors. And so I'm going to play through, we actually have audio clips from this one, and I'll play through that. And we'll, I'll just let you decide sort of what you think about that. And then in the second segment, as usual, we will do our COVID update. I keep hoping this will be the last week that we do that. But until, you know, we're sort of in the all clear, it seems like it's best to just continue doing that because it's good just to talk through the numbers because, as I've had many people tell me, that they usually hear things from me talking through actual CDC and state-level information. They hear that on this show, which they don't hear in the general public. And as we learned over the past couple of weeks... Uh, there was an actual study on this. In the United States, coverage regarding the coronavirus, 91% of it is actually negative. So if you talk about anything positive that happens overall, you actually are usually hearing something different. So that's why I'm continuing to do this, providing a service because you probably haven't heard some of these things. So that's the agenda for this week's show. And with that, we will jump right in. So I said at the top here, we're going to start start out with a phone call. And this broke, this is a story from the Washington Post. It broke on Sunday, and it's leaked audio. It's apparently an hour-long conversation over the phone that Donald Trump had with various election officials in Georgia. I know specifically that Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger was on there. He has been in the news because he's been responsible for overseeing the Georgia election. And so there are there are a few others on that call that I don't know their names particular. Um, I, I tracked down the audio from him because I really wanted to hear it first before I read the Post's spin on what happened. Because with most of these things, you just have to get to the actual absolute bottom and then figure out what the reporters are saying and how they're spinning it because they focus on different things. So what the Post has done is that they have access to about an hour hour's worth of audio. They have released about four to five minutes of that audio, clipping through and hitting what they deem are the highlights of this. So that's important. And I'm going to play those clips for you so you have them. They have them up. Anybody can listen to them. And 
the thing about about that audio is that there's not a lot that's different in the phone call than what you would see on Trump's Twitter feed or what you would hear from his most ardent supporters that election fraud did occur. There's not a lot of difference there. It's the fact that he's on a phone call with Georgia officials, basically trying to lean on them and put pressure on them to change the outcome and change the number of votes or to decertify, basically to do anything to change what happened in Georgia. And they're not going to do that. And so... I mean, I could go through and describe all of this, but I, I really wanted to start out here to give you what the audio is that's that's floating around, what's what's in this phone call, and just sort of play it out, let you hear it, and then sort of talk through some of it a little bit, and talk through another thing that's happening here with some of the the senators and the and what they're trying to do on the backside of all of this. So. We'll start out here. This is going to be about four and a half to five minutes here worth of audio where it's Donald Trump on the phone talking to Georgia election officials, trying to get something out of them, get them to admit something that they've done. So here it is. Here is the audio. We have won this election in Georgia based on all of this. And there's there's nothing wrong with with saying that, Brad. You know, I mean, having the having a correct the people of Georgia are angry. And these numbers are going to be repeated on Monday night, along with others that we're going to have by that time, which are much more substantial even. And the people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. Now, do you think it's possible that they uh, shredded ballots in uh, Fulton County? Because that's what the rumor is. And also that Dominion took out machines. Uh, that Dominion is really moving fast to get rid of their uh, machinery. Do you know anything about that? Because that's illegal. No, Ryan Germany. No, Dominion is not um, moved any machinery out of Fulton County. We're having. Well, but no, but but have they moved? Have they? Have they moved the inner parts of the machines and replaced them with other parts? No. You sure, Ryan? I'm sure. You should want to have an accurate election. And you're a Republican. We believe that we do have an accurate election. No, I no you don't. No, no, you don't. You don't have you don't have not even close. You got you're off by hundreds of thousands of votes. You know what they did, and you're not reporting it. That's a, you know, that's a criminal, that's a criminal offense, and and you know you can't let that happen. That's that's a big risk to you and to Ryan, your lawyer. That's a big risk, but they are shredding ballots, in my opinion, based on what I've heard, and they are removing machinery, uh, and they're moving it as fast as they can both of which are criminal fines, and you can't let it happen, and you are letting it happen. You know, I mean, I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. So, So tell me... Brad, what are we going to do? We won the election, and it's not fair to take it away from us like this. And it's going to be very costly in many ways. And 
I think you have to say that you're going to re-examine it, and you can re-examine it, but, but re-examine it with people that want to find answers, not people that don't want to find answers. Uh, for instance, I'm hearing Ryan, and he's probably, I'm sure, a great lawyer and everything, but he's making statements about those ballots that he doesn't know. But he's making them with such, he, he did make them with surety, but now I think he's less sure, because the answer is they all went to Biden. And that alone wins us the election by a lot, you know. So. Mr. President, uh, you have people that submit information, and we have our people that submit information, and then it comes before the court, and the court then has to make a determination. We have to stand by our numbers. We believe our numbers are right. Well, under law, you're not allowed to give faulty election results, okay? You're not allowed to do that, and that's what you've done. This is a faulty election result. And honestly, this should go very fast. You should meet tomorrow because you have a big election election coming up, and because of what you've done to the president, you know, the people of, of uh, Georgia know that this was a scam. And because of what you've done to the president, a lot of people aren't going out to vote. And a lot of Republicans are going to vote negative because they hate what you did to the president. Okay? They hate it. And they're going to vote. And if you would be respected, if really respected, if this thing could be straightened out before the election. You have a big election coming up on Tuesday. So that's the audio. That is everything that the Post has put out. The viral part of that is the where Trump is requesting basically that they find a little over 11,000 votes because that's what he needs to effectively win. I think that is about right. I, I, I forget what the exact certified numbers were in Georgia. They started out at around 14,000. And after all the recounts, that dwindled down a little bit, but that is probably about what he needs to change the results in Georgia. Um, and that's the audio. So, First off, just start up here on this first point. It's just not good for any president of the United States to make a call to state election officials and do this sort of thing where you're berating them and you're trying to get them to change what they've done, either to change certification, to find votes, to do anything like that. Because just... Think here for a moment. If were this any Democrat, if this were Obama, if this were Bill Clinton, if this were Joe Biden, and they were doing like if this were 2016 and Hillary Clinton called Pennsylvania and was berating them for giving that state to Donald Trump, well, there would be a lot of outcry about that, particularly on the right, because they would see this as trying to impact how people do their jobs in these states. And that's what this is here. And, you know, if that happened, if this was Hillary Clinton doing that, there, of course, would not would be pretty much no outcry from the left on doing this. And you would hear it only on the right. Because this is Trump, you're only going to hear outcry from the left and, by extension, the media, and none on the right. And that's just, that's just the political nature of these things. That's how this goes. I don't really expect anything less. That is how... Politics works right now. You just sort of expect that sort of thing. But objectively, this is just awful behavior. This is not what you would want 
any politician to do in any election. This is not what you want to hear them to do, especially if they're fishing for votes, which is effectively what he what he wants here. It's not even that he wants to get to an accurate result. He just wants accurate enough where he can say, well, we got enough votes here. I win this state. And, you know, even if they did that, even if Georgia Republicans gave him that state, he would still lose the election because Georgia alone by itself will not get him the results he seeks. He lost Arizona, he lost Pennsylvania, he lost Wisconsin, Michigan, and so on. So this is truly bad behavior. In fact, this is actually straight up impeachable behavior because this is pretty much what the founders had in mind when you have a person trying to use their executive power like this to change what's happening in a state. Now, of course, this is not going to be impeached because he's on his way out. Joe Biden's going to enter into office in January. But again, this is what the founders had in mind when they designed impeachment, because you don't want a person abusing their office and their power like this, leaning on another state office, trying to get them to do that. And and the, the other part here, and I kind of mentioned this at the top, is that, and it's even ironic, there won't be the level of outcry that's probably needed about this, because this is not all that different from what he says on Twitter, in public events, and just anything that involves a big press conference. This is what Trump is saying happened. This is what you see at a press conference with Sidney Powell or Lynn Wood. They're all convinced the election is stolen, but they've presented absolutely zero, zero evidence to that effect. Now, he's saying they're going to present something on Monday. Again, with this administration, they're always going to present something in the future. They haven't so far. They've said they were going to present something, you know, in two weeks going back to the date of the election and they've yet to do anything. And I keep bringing this up because if you have this, if you have this kind of evidence, you have to bring it before a court to get them to challenge the results of the election. And in these states, I forget which state it was now, but in one of them, the the Trump administration just went ahead and agreed with the state to the facts. They didn't present anything challenging what the state said had happened. They just agreed with it and made legal arguments. They don't have this evidence or else they haven't brought it. They keep asserting that all these things are happening. They're asserting things like shredded ballots, that the Dominion voting machines, you know, are being taken out. They're asserting all these things with no evidence. These are the equivalent of conspiracy-riddled posts on social media where people are asserting things without any evidence. And, I, and I've seen this over the past couple of weeks because I live in Tennessee, and so I've, I've watched the Nashville bombing news you know, with, with great interest and great intrigue because it was right here in my community, and I've seen similar conspiracy theories here. We've seen everything from Nashville was hit by missiles, there were energy weapons involved, this was all about Trump, this was all about Biden, this was all about Dominion voting machines that were supposedly going to be, you know, they were going to be audited in that, in that AT&T building that the bomber was in front of. But it turns out the bomber was insane. He believed in, literally believed in things like lizard people were real. Aliens and lizard people were running the world. Also, 9-11 was an inside job and the moon landing was a hoax. Basically, he got all his information from conspiracy videos on YouTube. And so that's the guy who bombed, who made, who made that bomb. 
But that's the level of conspiracy theory that we're talking about here, that the president is peddling as truth to these election officials, for which he has not a shred of evidence. When he, when he says, you know, from what I'm hearing and stuff, what he's repeating is some of the worst conspiracy-laden stuff that you'll find on the Internet that happened in the election. It's sort of like in 2016 when he won, but he still said that there were millions upon millions of illegal aliens that voted, and that was the only reason that he lost the quote-unquote popular vote. There was no evidence of that either, but he said it anyway. This is the same thing. And so he, he, neither he nor his team have presented any proof that the election was stolen, that there is widespread fraud. They're presenting nothing of this, like this in, a, in, a, in any court, state or federal, across the country. And they've had their opportunities to do so. They've uh, refused to do that. They've just not do it. So... All the claims that he makes on that phone call about machines, about shredded ballots, about election results being wrong, he's sitting there, in fact, he's, he, he's basing his entire thing on the election being stolen on lies, berating people based on lies, and if he doesn't believe this himself, he is lying to them and berating them with lies. So this is the very worst of Donald Trump's behavior for the entire world to see. Now, again, this is not that different than what you would hear from his Twitter feed or from anywhere else where he is people are giving press conferences. This is, you know, grade A nonsense, just absolute nonsense. So if there was a shred of evidence that any of this was true, we would have seen this in a courtroom by a competent lawyer who would have bashed these states over the head with good evidence. That hasn't happened. They don't have it. And at this point, even if they did have it, it's too late because you already have the Electoral College that has gone through. And under federal law, that's it. They've hit this what's called a safe harbor provision. And so at that, this point, they had all their chance to lodge all their complaints, and the time is up. That's why I kept emphasizing back in November and December, if they were going to do this, they had to do it immediately because... Eventually, the law says, well, we all have to move on now. We can't sit here and wait for you to do sort of, you know, kick your shoes around in the sand. You've got to you've got to put up or shut up. And they didn't do anything. So this is effectively just mouthing off. So you can take your pick here. Either Donald Trump is lying on this phone call or he believes in conspiracy theories that are thoroughly debunked and wholly untrue. Because that's really your only options here. And I'm. It doesn't really bother me which one you decide to pick here, but those are the only options. Either he is a pathological liar or he has a conspiracy theory riddled brain. Take your pick because those are the only options here, and this is awful behavior. The phone call is bad, and he's really, really disgracing himself as he leaves office like this. This is an embarrassment and a disgrace, and there's just no other way to put it. And unfortunately... He's not alone, because I'm going to hit on something else here, because a few Senate Republicans are trying to score some political points here, too, specifically Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley of Texas and Missouri, respectively. They are pitching the idea of what's called an election commission to audit the results in certain states to determine the accuracy of the election. Now, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are both lawyers. They're both very intelligent, very highly educated lawyers. They both clerked at the Supreme Court. They are incredibly smart, and they know exactly what they're doing. 
And what they're doing is wrong, too. It will not work. And it is very politically cynical of them. It's a very cynical move for them to pull something like this because they know there's no changing the results of the election. This is wholly a political ploy solely to try to get Trump's eventual base for 2024. There is no legal basis for this. This is wholly a political maneuver by them. Andy McCarthy at National Review, he pretty much destroyed this idea in a column. And I was going to read off a couple of paragraphs here because he just, he thoroughly laid it twice. He explains it and then debunks it. And he said, They, referring to Cruz and Hawley, they propose an electoral commission that would audit the election results in select states chosen out of careful partisan calculation. It is a lawless gambit, blithely flouting an unambiguous command of federal election law, specifically the so-called safe harbor provision. That statute, Section 5 of Title 3 of the U.S. Code, controls whenever any state, under its laws, makes a, quote, final determination of any controversy or contest concerning the appointment of electors by judicial or other methods or procedures, end quote. As long as such determination by the state is made at least six days before the time... uh, the time the Electoral College votes, then it shall be conclusive as far as the federal government is concerned. Case closed. This year, December 14th, was the date fixed under the federal statutory formula for the Electoral College vote in each state. Ergo, if the states under their laws determined any disputes by December 8th, that determination is conclusive as a matter of federal law. Under Section 5, the state's resolution shall govern in counting of electoral votes by Congress on January 6th, this upcoming Wednesday. So, the states certified their election results under their laws prior to December 8th. These included Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona, states whose popular election results have been targeted by Trump and his supporters. Some of the acclaimed irregularities have been colorable, some spurious, but there is no proof that any of them would have changed the results in any election in any single state, much less President-elect Biden's overall victory. Neither Senator Hawley nor Senator Cruz claim otherwise. Moreover, the states resolved disputes raised by Team Trump under their own laws. The state's duly elected officials certify the results under the state's duly enacted procedures. So that may sound a little bit legalese, um, but the long and the short of it is this. Under federal law, you have to you have until a certain date to file all your contests and deal with all any and all irregularities. And if your state says that all those are fixed and done, and it's all done by a certain date, and then the Electoral College votes, there is no going back. It's a little bit like a statute of limitations thing here, because it puts an end date on everything. It says, okay, this all ends, this is done, the election is over, we're moving on. And that is all kicked in here, and it's kicked in quite some time before this, and the states have all certified their results. They've sent them all to the Electoral College. The votes happened. The safe harbor provision has long near kicked in because now it's 2021, and this was all in December. And all this is going to be finalized here at the first part of January. What they're talking about is what happened here in January is Pence is going to read off the certification results and then do the formalization of all these electoral votes. And that's it. 
they're in your, you know, I know there are news stories out there talking about, well, you know, all these senators and House Republicans are going to object. Good for them. They can object all you they want to. There's no changing the results. And there's nothing that's going to change what's going to happen here. This is now legally set into motion and nothing's going to change here. Literally, the only way you're going to get any change here is if you have, as I know I keep saying this and and it's kind of morbid, but the only way you get a change here is if there's death. And in that case, the natural order of, you know, how you end up selecting a successor in the event of some tragedy, that's when that kicks in. There is no avenue here, legally speaking, where Donald Trump becomes the president in, you know, on January 20th. That's not happening. All the legal remedies have been pursued, and this is over. Joe Biden's going to be the president. He's the 46th president of the United States, and this is the end. And McCarthy is right on all of his points here, legally and otherwise. This is the end of the matter. There's just no other way to go here. And so when Cruz and Hawley are pushing this, it's just a remarkably cynical political ploy by them both. They're really doing this to show that they're, you know, quote unquote, fighting for Trump and his supporters, but it's not going to do anything. This is a mirage uh, masquerading as more because legally speaking, there's nothing else that can change here. And... They're both smart. Holly and Cruz are smart. They're smart lawyers. And I know they know all of this because I know they engage in all the same legal circles that I also listen to, Federal Society and so on and so forth. They know this. They know they're proposing something that won't do anything and can't change anything. So this is thoroughly a way to try to politically go after Trump's support and his voters moving forward into 2024. So when you combine their behavior with Trump's behavior, you truly get something that's just outrageous at this point because it's just a disgrace and an embarrassment. At this rate, Biden's inauguration just can't come soon enough because this needs to end. This kind of behavior just needs to stop, and we need to go on and start moving into figuring out ways to, but one, if you're a Republican, you need to figure out how to win Georgia, which is going to happen this Tuesday. And then after that, you've got to figure out how to deal with Joe Biden and his administration in the coming days, weeks, and years ahead. That's what's in front of you. That is what has got to be dealt with here. And so... As I said, as I said earlier, Trump is either believing straight-up conspiracy theories or he's a pathological liar. Either way, you can choose either one of those. His behavior in this is not altogether that surprising. That's who he is. Cruz and Holly are a little bit different. They know what they're doing here. They are smart. They know the law, and they know what they're doing. So this is entirely political on their part, and entirely wrong. They are not conspiracy, you know, riddled minds here. They, they are not Trumpian in this respect. They are smart and know what they're doing. So this is all totally a political ploy on their part. And this is something, you know, I've called this out when Democrats have done this and doing this here because they're doing this and this is wrong too. So this entire post-election stuff with Trump and Republicans, it's just beyond embarrassing and it's just wrong. You, you can't do this. I understand the political calculations at play here, but it's also wrong because it undermines a lot of very serious points with our country. And, you know, when, when all this post-election stuff started happening, at first, you know, I was willing to listen to see if they had any evidence and they were able to provide any evidence that election fraud or some other malfeasance has occurred. Because I've seen lawyers work on these kinds of campaigns, these kinds of cases. I've seen the time that it takes and the level of detail you have to get into. 
And these guys just don't have that proof. And they've never had the proof. And instead, all they're doing are inflating and giving credence to conspiracy theories that are on par with stuff like, you know, 9-11 was an inside job or the moon landing was fake. That's what they're pushing here. That is the level of credence these things have because they have not offered a shred of evidence to prove any of them. And as I said, this is dangerous for the long-term health of the Republican because if you're setting up this kind of behavior as the norm for what a losing candidate does, that's going to harm our ability to turn power over to another party over time. If Democrats were acting this way, there's not a single person on the right who would want to deal with any of it. They would call this out for what it is. And you're not seeing that same reaction here, even though this is the same here. They do not have any evidence of election fraud, but they're accusing fraud here. So all of this just needs to end because it's bad for the long-term health of the country, and it's not good. And essentially, everything is just a disgrace at this point. And that's why I just want this all to end, because it is a complete and total disgrace. So... We'll just wrap up there on that segment. I'm going to take a break right here, and then when we come back, we'll do the COVID update. So what I normally do in this second segment here, talking through the coronavirus, is talk through the new numbers. I know I have some new people listening this week, so I'm just going to talk through some of the things I normally do here. So we start out talking through sort of a bullet point list of here are the numbers on the coronavirus, here's what we know, and what can we extrapolate forward. So I'll just say up front this week, All the hard numbers that we have right now are just screwy because we're coming off of Christmas and New Year's. And you have states that are dumping sometimes multiple days worth of data into one day. I know in Tennessee, we've had about three or four different days here where you've had two days worth of data dumped into one. That meant the other day wasn't, didn't have anything on it. And the next day has two. That's why you have to really count on your averages throughout this to kind of draw all of that out to show you what's happening. You can't really rely on a lot of these one-day reports. And as we're working through this right now, everything just looks funky because you have with with Christmas falling on Friday and then New Year's falling on Friday there, you have sort of these long, drawn-out weekends. And because of that, that means your data time that you're gathering because you, you probably aren't going to have data gathered during that time. Or, any, even, or just processed or anything like that happening during those days. And so it really compresses in what you have during other days. So just when you're looking at your, your data, you're looking at your charts, everything looks screwy. So that is the caveat to everything we're going to walk through here today. It's hard to project forward when you just have a lot of these really two really bad back-to-back weeks. So everything's funky. That's your caveat. Here are the numbers. Daily testing right now has dropped from around 1.75 million to around 1.5 million tests a day. Part of this, again, is because of Christmas and New Year's hours dropping the number of tests that are being reported. We witnessed this after Thanksgiving. There was a lull there where things dropped down and then they bounced back up. In the, if you're looking at these numbers, you haven't seen that bounce back yet, but that's because you have two weeks here. So, Over this next week, I would hope those numbers bounce back up closer to 2 million because that's going to give us a little bit more of an accurate result. The other thing that's happening here, though, that is sort of a long-term issue with testing is that we are shifting healthcare resources away from testing and into vaccinations. 
Now, this isn't a problem in, in reality, and it should make some sense. We have limited numbers of healthcare workers, and we need them focused on the biggest bang for our buck in all of these certain triage areas where we're trying to contain this virus. And up until now, the best place to have all your healthcare workers was testing. You wanted to get people out there to track down where the virus is, get people quarantined to prevent the spread of the virus. So testing presented the best bang for your buck here. That's no longer the case. That's shifting into vaccinations because you can actually straight up prevent the spread of the virus if you are vaccinating people. And if people have that vaccination, even if they do get it, you're thinking along those lines is that they'll be it'll be easier for them to deal with it at that point, which is going to drop the severity and hopefully drop the number of hospitalizations that you're going to see. So the biggest bang is no longer testing. It is moving into vaccinations. Now, that transition hasn't fully happened yet because of the holidays, but that is going to happen here as we move into January. There is also, and I haven't seen this tested, but this is just me sort of looking at the numbers and thinking through some of the other trend things that, that we've seen. There's probably also some behavioral changes here, too. What we saw in the summer with Thanksgiving and Christmas is that when people were leading into these events and they knew that they wanted to gather with friends and family members, what they would do is that they would all test. They would all say, okay, if we have a positive, we won't allow this person to come to the gathering. But if everybody has a negative, we can have this event and everybody can get together because there's not going to be a threat. And so you would see sort of these surges in testing, going into them, and then it would drop off a little bit as you got closer to it because everybody would be gone and there wouldn't be a need for testing. And so there's probably a behavioral change here where people are thinking now, well, I don't need to get tested. I need to look at for ways to get the vaccine. And once we get the vaccines, then we will gather. And so I think you're seeing probably here, too, people changing their behavior because you know, in the spring, summer, and even in some places now, when the virus would surge, you would sometimes see in economic behavior, you would see things like, you know, people going to movie theaters less or restaurants less. Before a government edict would ever go out shutting things down, human behavior would change. People would say, okay, I don't feel safe going out, so we're not going to go out this weekend. So that would mean that you didn't have economic behavior that hacked that weekend. And so sales would drop and you would notice that in, you know, basic business numbers that are released publicly. And so that's sort of a, be a behavioral change that you see just looking at economic data as opposed to testing and other things. If people are saying, okay, we're going to go with the vaccine instead of testing, that's also going to drop the amount of tests that you're going to see. So the people who are going in, they were just getting tested and knew they didn't have it, but wanted to prove they didn't have it. Those kind of people are probably going to go in anymore. They're probably looking at it from the angle of, well, I can just wait, get vaccinated and rely on that instead. So I think there are a number of factors here that are impacting both the number of tests, you know, the type of person who's going to go get tests tested, and those sorts of things. And, you know, and we're, we're shifting resources, and you should want that. I know here in Tennessee, I saw a news story where, I think it was the Tennessean, and they were reporting it as a scandal that Governor Bill Lee and his administration were moving healthcare workers out of testing and into vaccinations. They were saying, well, this is going to lower the number of tests that we have. So it's going to look like we're going to have, you know, fewer cases. Now, so far that hasn't panned out just because we're seeing still a high number of positives come in. But 
even if it were true, you would still want to move those people over to vaccines because you would prefer people getting vaccinated as opposed to just getting tested. You want vaccines at this point over tests. So a lot of things happening in the testing stuff. It is beginning to lose importance here. I'm still going to start out with it because it tells us sort of what's happening right now while we figure everything else out. Now, on that note, the positivity rate is getting impacted by this, too. So the total number of cases coming back still remains about where it was pre-Christmas. There's a a little over 200,000 people who test positive each day in the averages. And the percentage of tests coming back, though, that has skyrocketed. It is now 13.1%. And... You know, I had last week off, but if you went into previous weeks, we had sort of gone up and then plateaued in and around the 10 to 11% mark. So we're running fewer tests right now, but the positivity rate is higher, which sort of tells you that we're still finding those positive cases, which kind of tells you that we are testing a little bit more targeted now. People who think they have it are getting tested. People who have been exposed are getting tested, but it's the... They needless tests more than likely that we have gotten rid of. And so that's sort of explaining this increase in the percentage here, but the lowering of the overall numbers. So it still remains to be seen whether or not this is good or bad. Normally, you know, if you're, you're still testing around 2 million like we were before and you see this positivity rate climb, that would mean that your the total number of, te- of positive cases should be going up. But they're not. They're still around 200,000. So we're testing less and have a higher thing, which tells us that we're still getting those people who have it. They're just not showing up in the same way. So that's sort of the tests, the new cases and everything like that. Um, with all of that, though, and, you know, all these things that I think are sort of happening here in these tests, even with all of that, the hospitalizations and death numbers, those are still bad, and they continue to climb. Hospitalizations are continuing to creep up. We're now at a seven-day average of 124,000, we, and we had a one-day high this past week of a little over 125,000 hospitalizations. And remember, during the spring and the summer, these highs were sat at around 60,000, just under that. So we are well more than double where we were at any previous peak. We had sort of been edging towards this before the holidays, and now we are well over it. And when you're looking at charts of this, the curve that you're talking about on these hospitalizations, it's not quite as steep. There's a little bit of curve to it where it's not going up quite as fast, but it still is an upward projection. Uh, you know, an upward trajectory that, and that just needs to change. You cannot have this many people getting sick. The, um, the, the, um, well, thinking about hospitalizations here, I I was reminded here, so I was walking through this. I have a college friend and she was an adult student when I was in college. And so she has an adult son in his 20s, and he was hospitalized in New York with the virus. So, you know, a young guy who has the virus was even put on ventilators, and she was going to travel to go be with him because, you know, mom would want to be there. And she was feeling, she started feeling sick. She tested positive and then started feeling sick on her way up there and had to turn around because they're not going to let her in there. She's got it. So now, because of, you know, all of that, her now her son is in a hospital without family around being treated and she can't go up there because she's also sick and having to quarantine. They're both doing better now. Last I heard he was off the ventilators, 
but that is the sort of thing you're dealing with here. The, that is the kind of thing that's happening now with these hospitalizations. Hospitalizations are full and people are not going to be allowed to go in. One, you don't want sick people there, but right now we're just flat out running out of space. And so these are the kind of scary scenarios that are happening here and why we need to sort of get a lot of this under control. And, get, you know, that's just kind of where we are right now. I know, you know, people are out and about and acting a lot more normally than they were before, but it is without question that things are just across the board worse than they are before, especially when you're looking at the two worst possibilities here, hospitalizations and deaths, because long hospitalizations, as long as those continue to climb, you're going to see deaths climb as well. The seven-day average for deaths sits above 2,600 people a day, and that is higher than any previous surge. We previously peaked in spring at around 2,000, and we're well above that. December 30th was our single-day high as a country. We had more than 3,900 people die in a single day. Now, the caveat to that, as with all these numbers, is that there's a delay in reporting with a lot of this. You had Christmas where there's no reporting going on, so you probably have a lot of stuff lumped into there on that one date. But even with that, that is still a bad number. So all that together, that's where we are right now. That is, we're still as bad as we were pre-Christmas. It doesn't appear in any of the data that there is a Christmas surge happening. But it may still be a little too early to do to figure out that or anything that could happen with New Year's. There hasn't really been a surge from any holiday. It's all anything that's happened has just continued on regardless of the holiday. So with all that, that the, the last number we have here are vaccinations. And that is the one bright spot here, according to the latest data. And on vaccinations, the big caveat here is that states, I don't, I'm not aware of any state that's doing daily reporting on vaccinations, so no national report is going to be update. So take that with a grain of salt here. Uh, Tennessee does Tuesdays and Fridays. I think some states are only do updating once a week. So, you know, take this all with a grain of salt. But we have currently vaccinated in a single dose 4.23 million people. So four and a quarter. Basically, is basically what you're dealing with here, and that's over two holidays. So, from Tim, from my vantage point, vaccinating over four million people over the course of two holidays, the two busiest holidays here, is a pretty fantastic achievement here. And I would expect to see those numbers really go up. There was a, a moment right before Christmas where vaccinations really climbed up and shot up in a single day here in Tennessee. I think the same was true in a lot of other places. You had in between Christmas and New Year's, there's probably like a one or two day there where a ton of people all got vaccinated at once. That could be reporting, but it also could be a reflection of just where these holidays are. So that is our good news. We're up to 4 million people, over 4 million people. For a comparison, we've had about 20.5 million positive case, positive tests. So that's not necessarily people who have it, but 20.5 million positive tests. And we've already vaccinated, you know, four and a quarter on the, on, with the first dose of this vaccine. So we are making very good progress, especially when you compare it to how fast it's taking us to test people and figure out whether or not they had it or not. So I see the vaccination story as a good story that is in the process of unfolding. There's a lot of negativity around it right now where people are saying, well, it's not fast enough. Why aren't we doing it more? There are certainly a lot of problems with that. 
but I don't think it's as bad, quite as bad as people say that it is. Although, another caveat here, I can tell you a little bit of a story here. I was reading about Israel and how they're doing vaccines because they're doing fantastic. I want to say I saw some story recently where they were up to 40%, but that is off the top of my head, and I wouldn't quote me on that. But they have vaccinated a ton of their population so far, well outpacing anyone else in the world. And one of the things that they're doing, and this was in this story, is that when you're, you know, they're focusing like everybody is on vaccinating the first, you know, your, your first responders, the people who are healthcare workers, the people who are your police, your firemen, people who are always in harm's way of the virus. Vaccinate them first. And they're doing that. But what happens is, if you have the Pfizer vaccine, you have to go through a process where you pull them out of the deep freezer and then sort of bring them up to temperature to use them in another person. But when you do that, you can't then refreeze them if you didn't use a given dose after you brought them out of the freezer. You have to use them. So what Israel is doing is that if they still have unused vaccines and they have no more healthcare workers, well, they're just ignoring the, the mandate that they have to do healthcare workers first, and then they're vaccinating anyone that they could pop with it. So, you know, if they, they literally, the story that I read was if they see somebody out there, if they see a pizza delivery guy, and they're like, hey, you want a vaccine? And he's like, sure, yeah, sure. They'll pop him right there. And that is not necessarily true of what's happening over here particularly in what appears to be happening in New York. So in New York, Andrew Cuomo, who is the worst governor who has responded to this in in the country, he is easily the worst governor and his media defenders will not remit, will not you know admit to that. His new regulation that he's put out is he's going to fine people and fine these places that have the vaccine if they give the vaccine to anyone who's not on the first phases of his list. So it's not, a, you know, one of your healthcare providers or one of your first responders or one of the key communities that he's targeting. If you don't give it to one of those groups, then you're fine. So what that's going to do is if you're in a situation similar to Israel, where you're in a situation where you've got, well, I've got a few extra doses here. I have no one else that I can bring in from the key group today. If I don't use this, I have to throw it away. I don't want to throw it away. Therefore, I'm going to go, you know, give this to somebody. That's not going to happen in New York because if you're going to get fined if you do that, what they're going to do is what happens in any other part of the healthcare industry in the United States, they'll dispose of that vaccine. So it'll be a waste. So that's how something I think we need to keep an eye on here, especially in places like New York, is that if you have those kinds of rules in place, how much vaccine in these doses, how much of them are you wasting because of stupid regulations from these governors? You know, Cuomo thinks he's doing a big thing here where he's standing up and making sure that the right people get vaccinated first, but in the process of that, he's probably going to end up creating a lot of waste and vaccinations aren't just aren't going to get used. It's a possibility anyway. He just implemented that, but I think it's worth watching in the long term. Because I just think you're going to see a lot of more waste here in the United States that doesn't need to exist. So we will, the, the thing to watch here on the vaccination front is just watch the next two weeks. This is going to be the really the first time we're going to be able to get good data on how fast we are vaccinating people. And that is going to be very important moving forward.
So that really wraps everything up for this week. I'm going to head right into the light item segment. And for this week's light item, I'm returning to a favorite of mine, Joey uh, Molinaro. He's a comedian and impressionist. He has, without question, one of the best Nick Saban impressions out there. I, I shared his Nick Saban impression where he was giving candy out to... to to trick-or-treaters at, during Halloween. And this past week, uh, Nick Saban, the actual coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide, who beat Notre Dame in their first playoff bowl game. And during one of the post-game interviews, Nick Saban got incredibly frustrated and flustered because the headphones that ESPN gave him to you know, go through uh, his, his interview, they didn't work. And he got mad. He, he chucked the headphones aside, I believe. And he was really agitated during during this thing. And he normally is. He hates dealing with the media, but he was super agitated at this. So what Joey has done here is he's done his impression of what was really going through Nick Saban's head during this time and what Nick Saban really wanted to say when all of this fell apart. So here he is. I'm going to link to him. Make sure to go follow him. Here is Joey. I can't. I I don't have time for this. I, I come over here because I'm required to do it, and you don't even have it set up to where I can hear. I, the headphones don't work. Can't hear you. I got wires everywhere. We barely beat Notre Dame. Right? We let them hang around. That's another issue. And then I come over, and you don't have the headset ready to go where I can't hear you. I got wires everywhere. Like I said, it's like it's Christmas morning, right? and I'm fiddling with a new toy. I, it's like I told, I told Miss Terry to give me the AirPods. She didn't give me no AirPods, so now I got to mess with the wires here on the, on the sideline, too. All right, that's a whole nother issue. We got bigger problems at hand, but next time that you want me to come over here and do these things, all right, that I'm required to do, make sure you have them ready to go. All right. He's just fantastic. I'm going to link to him in the show notes. Make sure to go give him a follow, share his stuff because he is a really great young comedian. So that's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback. You can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute. And the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. So make sure to sign up before that and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews. I hope you tune in again. But until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week. And I will see you guys in the next episode.